We are picking up our long suspended series on Amillennialism 101, and we have finally come to the last section of this very long course. And in this section, we're going to take up the exegesis of the critical texts that deal with the question of the millennium. Uh, just a couple of routine bookkeeping items before we uh, pick up with the lecture. We have covered a lot of ground, and that ground is available to anyone uh, who wants to find it uh, on my blog, the Riddle blog. You can get at all the previous lectures on Amillennialism 101, and I would really encourage you to go back and listen to the first couple lectures when we talk about methodology, big picture kinds of stuff. And at the end of the day, I made the case that um, the way the, the proof of an eschatological system is which system explains the greatest number of passages with the least number of texts that you have to ram into, you know, the, the round peg into the square hole. Every eschatological system has a few passages that kind of stick out and don't fit. Um, but I think I've made the case that the all-millennial interpretation of Scripture makes the best sense of the greatest number of passages indeed uh, undoes some of the damage that dispensationalism does by making clear passages obscure and taking obscure Old Testament texts and making them kind of roughshod, uh, run roughshod over the New Testament. So we've established a fair bit of background, and I'm just going to pick up tonight where I left off, and uh, you can go back and get that background. It's available to you. And you can also uh, look up my book, A Case for, Amillennial, A Case for Amillennialism, in which we have uh, established all the groundwork. So we're going to proceed ahead and cover some of these uh, critical biblical passages. So let's uh, start fresh with a look at uh, the exegesis of the critical texts. Now, we have established a biblical and theological framework in order to interpret the various uh, passages of Scripture which speak to the question of the millennial age. So, as I argued early on, the issue here is the millennial question, and now let's take a look at those passages that specifically deal with that question. Now, in each instance, we have been able to trace a particular eschatological theme throughout the history of God's self-revelation in Scripture. We've done this with the kingdom of God. We've seen that the kingdom of God has both a future yet to be consummated aspect to it and a present reality, the kingdom of God is at hand. That's also found in the pages of the New Testament. We've looked at the tension between the already and the not yet, what God has fulfilled in Christ, yet what remains to be fulfilled, the not yet. We've talked about the two-age model at length, this age, age to come. And in all of that, we've seen that there really is no place in redemptive history for a golden age on the earth. A golden age before Christ comes back, the position of post-millennialism, where the gospel succeeds to the point that all the nations of the earth are effectively Christianized, and so we could say that Christ returns to a saved earth. That was the position of B.B. Warfield. Or premillennialism, that Christ comes back, there's a sort of halfway consummation, and Jesus establishes a kingdom on the earth, a kingdom in which people in natural bodies live side by side with people in resurrected bodies. And we've seen how huge a problem that is because that millennial kingdom that Jesus supposedly sets up after he returns ends with the nations of the earth revolting against Christ after he's ruled and reigned over them for a thousand years. And we've seen that that's a huge theological problem for anyone who's premillennial. 
So, when we've looked at that big picture, we've been able to get a glimpse of the whole panorama of redemptive history from Genesis to Revelation. And as we do that, that enables us to evaluate our own presuppositions in light of that broader history of Revelation and to identify uh, how these various themes unfold against this uh, broader panorama of redemption. Now, that's especially important because one of the issues I'm sure you've all run into it when you talk about end times with somebody, you're just trading Bible verses. You have your verses, they have their verses, and it's hard to get kind of a collision going. Um, that's because people don't talk about their underlying hermeneutical assumptions. And it's really important to identify what they are and to continually have them before your eyes so you can test them in light of Scripture. And we have spent a lot of time talking about that and doing that. So we're in a pretty good place now to turn to a look at some specific passages. Now, we've been repeatedly reminded that the central figure in all of redemptive history and eschatology is none other than our Lord Jesus Christ. And with these redemptive themes and with Christ as the central figure in redemptive history, uh, the subject of all of Scripture, we can now look at the specific biblical passages that are the most important in determining one's millennial views. And There are several others, but for the sake of time and for the sake of clarity, I've chosen the main ones. Uh, Tonight we'll look at Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, and you might want to be turning there and getting that passage ready. And uh, hold it open because we'll be referring back to it a number of times. In the next two weeks, we'll go through the Olivet Discourse. This is our Lord's discussion with His disciples on the Mount of Olives as they look down on the Temple Mount. And we'll look at Matthew 24, Mark 13. We'll look also at portions of Luke 19 and Luke 21. We'll spend a couple weeks going through all that discourse. Then we'll look at Romans chapter 11. Romans 11, actually the section 9 through 11, is the primary place in the New Testament where the Apostle Paul discusses the future of redemptive history. He's living shortly after Christ's death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. And he, in that passage, maps out the interplay between God's purpose for Israel and God's purpose for the Gentiles. And I think Paul makes the case in that chapter that immediately before the end, when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, God is going to save huge numbers of ethnic Jews. They're going to become Christians. And we'll spend a fair bit of time on that because this is really, I think, the clearest passage and certainly in Paul's writings about the, about the future, and it has a lot to, to say to us. And I think you'll be um, amazed at what's not there. There's no mention of Israel returning back to the land. There's no mention of a future Antichrist. There's no mention of a millennial kingdom. None of the things that premillenarians or postmillenarians tell us are going to happen are mentioned in that passage. What you do have is this oscillating pattern of God's grace going to Israel. Israel rejecting the Messiah, God's grace now kind of pivoting back to the Gentiles until the fullness of time comes in, then back to Israel again. And I'm going to argue that when we see the kind of the the broad panorama of God's redemptive work now start to center around the conversion of ethnic Jews, that to us is a sign that the end is really drawing near. That's one of the, the things that will happen right before the end. And then we'll spend a week looking at Revelation chapter 20. Uh, This is, of course, the only passage anywhere in the Bible where the thousand years are mentioned. And I'm going to argue that Revelation chapter 20 is not talking about Christ ruling and reigning from the throne in Jerusalem at all. 
The thrones in the book of Revelation are always in heaven. They're not on earth. The passage isn't talking about what happens after Christ comes back. It's a description of the present age. And I'm going to try and make the case as best I can that Revelation chapter 20 is a description of the interadvental period between Christ's first and second coming. It's not a description of a millennial kingdom on earth after our Lord returns. So that's where we're going to go, and that will bring us to the end of our series. So let's take up a, a discussion of Daniel 9:24 to 27. If you were raised in dispensationalism, you know that this passage is, in many ways, the pillar of the dispensational system of eschatology. Because it's from Daniel 9 at 24 to 27 that dispensationalists develop their rather distinctive doctrines of a future seven-year tribulation period that commences when the Antichrist signs a peace treaty with the nation of Israel at or about the time of the secret rapture. It's from this passage, then, that the dispensationalist notion of a seven-year tribulation period is taken. It's from this passage that dispensationalists will argue that Antichrist uh, forms some kind of a, a treaty with Israel. That treaty requires a rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. Antichrist, in the middle of this period of time, turns on Israel, betrays Israel, and that starts the, the complex of events that mark the time of the end. As we're going to argue, the problem with that is the peace treaty is not with Antichrist, it's with the Messiah. So that's a rather significant difference of opinion, and we'll talk about that momentarily. But this text is, is really fundamental to dispensationalism, and it's from this passage that they get their idea that God is done dealing with Israel until the 70th week of Daniel begins, and in this present age, we are dealing with the Gentiles. Uh, some dispensational writers call this the great parenthesis. Uh, Jesus brought his offer of the kingdom to Israel. Israel rejected the offer of the kingdom. Jesus withdrew the offer of the kingdom, took it to heaven with him when he ascended, and that kingdom won't come back until Christ returns and establishes that kingdom on the earth. So as we uh, made the case, when we discussed the kingdom of God at great length, that raises a huge question. What's Jesus doing now? And how is he ruling and reigning? And is the kingdom present in any sense? And if so, how? And of course, that relates to our discussion also of the two kingdoms and the civil kingdom and Christ's kingdom and how those two things relate as well. So um, it's rather natural to have a two-kingdom uh, view of Christian ethics and society if you hold to an all-millennial eschatology. Those things kind of fit hand in glove. We'll uh, see some of that as we go along. Now, dispensationalists very candidly admit that in this 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel, and I'm quoting from Alvin, Alva J. McLean's book, Daniel's Prophecy of the 70th Week, quote, we have the indispensable chronological key to all New Testament prophecy. Now, think about that for a minute. Daniel 9, 24 to 27 we have the indispensable chronological key to all New Testament prophecy. Something should strike you as odd about that sentence. The key to New Testament prophecy. This is an Old Testament passage, I think, is pretty clear to everybody. And as I mentioned early on, if you're a dispensationalist and you're here in the Old Testament, redemptive history is going forward, Israel, John MacArthur says, means Israel. 
So from, Dan, uh, from Genesis 12, 15, 18, 22, on and on as the promise unfolds, if Israel means Israel here in redemptive history, then it must mean Israel here in redemptive history. And so McLean's being very consistent with dispensational theology. This passage is about Israel, he says. Therefore, it's going to tell him in advance what the New Testament says about Israel in the future. The problem with that is, it leaves out Christ and the apostles. That's a rather large problem, is it not? Because Christ and the apostles tell us what the Old Testament means and how it's fulfilled. Let me give you a concrete case of this. In the opening chapters of the book of Revelation, John is given the vision, and he's told to do what to the scroll? To open it. That nobody's worthy to open except the Lamb. Remember Ezekiel? Ezekiel is told to roll it up, seal it up, and so is Daniel. So it's John in the Apocalypse who's given the vision that tells us what Daniel was getting at. And John can only do that after the coming of Christ. So our dispensational friends have it exactly backwards. The New Testament, the book of Revelation especially, tells us what Daniel is seeing and what Daniel is trying to reveal in type and shadow in the Old Covenant. So when our dispensational friends tell us this is the key to New Testament prophecy, the radar ought to be up, and we ought to say, on its face, methodologically, that's the problem. That's why we disagree with dispensations. The New Testament interprets these prophecies uh, for us. So, McLean goes on to say that this provides Christians with that uh, way to make sense of the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and Revelation chapter 20. So, Daniel 9 uh, tells them what Matthew 24 and Revelation chapter 20 are going to say. So, if you take away the dispensational interpretation of Daniel 9, if this collapses, then you pretty well take away the pillar of the dispensational system and, and I think dispensationalism, dispensationalism pretty much collapses. I remember sitting in Dr. Klein's class on Old Testament hermeneutics when I was at Westminster. I was a Calvinist, but still a dispensationalist. And I remember the sheer panic that went through me when he gave his interpretation of the 70 weeks prophecy. Now, it wasn't part of his lecture, but a student had asked about it. And I remember thinking, uh-oh, because if that interpretation is correct then the seven-year tribulation goes, the peace treaty with Israel goes, the rebuilding of the temple goes, the whole notion of the end times centering around Antichrist in Israel, the whole thing is gone. So you take this away, and dispensationalism is in big trouble. And I felt the weight of that, and I would encourage anyone who's a dispensationalist to you know, take this pretty seriously and look at this, because this is, I think, not a strength of your system. I think this is one of the fundamental and most serious weaknesses of your system. Now, this interpretation of Daniel 9 really serves to illustrate the fact that our dispensational friends insist upon reading the New Testament in light of the Old Testament instead of vice versa. And that method of interpretation prevents us from seeing the passage for what it is. It is one of the truly great messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. I'm going to keep referring back 
to what it is that's accomplished during the 70 weeks. What's accomplished is Christ's active and passive obedience. Christ's finishing transgression, putting an end to sin, atoning for wickedness, bringing in an everlasting righteousness, sealing up vision and prophecy, anointing the most holy. This is a prophecy of Christ's active and passive obedience. It's one of the most glorious messianic prophecies in all the Bible. This is the gospel in the Old Testament. And sadly, our dispensational friends turn it into a map of the end times. And granted, it does speak to the end times, but it's a passage about Christ and how Christ fulfills it in his perfect righteousness and in his death for our sins. And we'll come back to that as we go along farther. Let's take our Bibles and read the passage. And I, again, encourage you to hold your finger or keep it open because we're going to be referring back to the text uh, for the next 45 minutes or so. and You don't want to close your Bible and have to, to reopen it. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to do six things, which I just mentioned. To finish transgression, put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity. To bring an everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. So before this prophecy of the 70 weeks is over, these things will have been accomplished. That's the, that's the goal of the prophecy, to fulfill these things. Know, therefore, and understand from the going out of a word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, that's the beginning of the prophecy, to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there should be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in a most in a, in a troubled time. After the 62 weeks, so that's after the first 69 weeks have run their course, after the 62 weeks, an anointed one. Who is this anointed one? The anointed one will be cut off and have nothing. And the prince, the people of the prince who is to come, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. If you know a little bit about New Testament history, you're thinking, I might recognize this in advance. That sounds very much like what happens in A.D. 70 when the temple is destroyed. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with the many for one week. So mark carefully that he, that personal pronoun in verse 27, who is that he? Is that the anointed one who makes a covenant, or is that the prince who is to come? That's really the, the guts of the, of the interpretive problem here. Is this Antichrist or is this Christ? It's kind of a fundamental interpretive choice, is it not? He'll put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall one who makes desolate until the end decreed is poured out upon the desolator. So it's an important passage. Um, there are a couple of things to look for there, and we'll come back to it. Um, a number of times. Now, context is everything in a difficult passage like this. Um, it really helps to go back and to, to put this uh, particular prophecy in the broader context of the book of Daniel. Now, Daniel chapter 9, 24 to 27 occurs after Daniel's prayer, the first 19 verses of that chapter. Daniel, if you recall, is in exile he, in Babylon. He longs to be back in Jerusalem and he prays for God to restore Jerusalem and the temple. 
And the background to that prayer is found in Jeremiah 25:11 and following, where Jeremiah has prophesied that Israel will serve the king of Babylon for seven years. Babylon itself would fall at the hands of her enemies and become a desolate wasteland. And so when the angel Gabriel comes and answers Daniel's prayer in verses 20 to 27, you have Gabriel telling Daniel that Jeremiah's prophecy has run its course and the promise of restoration is about to be fulfilled. So Daniel's praying regarding the future of Jerusalem and the temple. The angel Gabriel comes and answers Daniel's prayer by pointing out that Jeremiah had addressed this and the prophecy of Jeremiah has run its course. And so Daniel then uh, invokes Yahweh's covenant uh, to Israel. The angel has reminded him of that. Daniel invokes this. He's, re- he's reminded of the fact that God is going to bring to pass everything that he's promised. And so in the prayer then, Daniel invokes God's covenant mercies. He, he calls to, to mind God be faithful. He says, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with all who love him and obey his commands. That's in verse 4 of the section. And so Daniel's prayer, it shouldn't be David's prayer, it's Daniel's prayer. Daniel's prayer in verse 4 of Daniel chapter 9 is one where Daniel's appealing then to God's covenant mercies. God, keep this covenant of love that you have made. And so Gabriel's answer then to Daniel's plaintive plea points forward to a time when God's not only going to restore his people, but God is finally going to consummate that covenant that he had made with Israel through Moses. So Daniel is wanting to know what's going to happen in Jerusalem and the temple, and Gabriel's answer is that all the things that Jeremiah prophesied are about to begin to come to pass. Now, as Meredith Klein points out in his uh, essay, The Covenant of the 70th Week, by the way, you can find this in a great website with a very catchy title. You can't forget this one, Klein Online. And Klein has an essay on Daniel's 70 weeks. And it's a difficult essay to read, but I think you'll find it uh, very, very, very helpful. Klein makes this point. He says, the striking thing about Daniel's prayer in verses 1 to 19 is the repeated use of the covenant name of God, Yahweh, along with the repeated use of Adonai, which is the characteristic designation of the dominant party in the covenant. So Daniel's prayer, the context is, he's asking God to keep his covenant. And he's using the covenant name of God, along with Adonai, that reminds us of the dominant party in the covenant. So, Daniel, in a sense, is invoking the the suzerain, uh, the Lord, to keep the covenant he's made with Israel, his vassal. And so, Daniel's appealing to that theme. And so, this is going to help us answer the question, who's the he in verse 27? The context has led us to believe This is a covenantal renewal. Daniel's appealing for that. That's what the context says. That's going to be really important when you try and answer the question, who's the he in Daniel 9.27? Now, as you know, there's a lot of discussion about this prophecy given the 
very cryptic use of the language of 70 weeks or 77s as the time frame in which the prophecy is to be fulfilled. And I just gave you kind of a, a brief overview here. 70 weeks, so it's 70 times 7. If it's a strict uh, fulfillment, it's 490 years. I'm going to argue that the theological point is a lot more important, although the 490 is the basis for that. And that is, this is 10 times Jubilee. So after 49 years comes the 50th year, the, the Jubilee year. So multiply that by 10, and you have 490. After the 490 is fulfilled, you have the ultimate Jubilee. So at the heart of Daniel's prophecy is that when this is all fulfilled, we enter into the ultimate Jubilee of God. So I think part of the problem we have is as Gentiles living 2,000 years after the time of Jesus and 2,700 years after the time of, of these prophecies, it's hard for us to make the connection to Israel's own history and Israel's own expectation of this glorious jubilee. And, of course, what Jesus comes to do as Messiah is to bring about the jubilee. So Klein is reminding us here, I think it's very important to be reminded of this, that this passage is not only about years, it's also about the ultimate jubilee uh, being realized. Now, the key to figuring out this 70 weeks is to just look for other biblical theological images that are going to help in the interpretation. Uh, what does the Old Testament do with the 70 weeks and other things that are connected to that? Are there any other places in Scripture where we get some help uh, to interpret this? Well, surprisingly, there are a number of places. Now, the entire prophecy is framed in covenantal imagery and language as we've seen in Daniel's prayer and as we're going to see in the passage itself. Um, the key meaning to the 77s is found in the sabbatical pattern established in Leviticus 25, verses 1 to 4. So turn to Leviticus 25, and let's read the first four verses of that passage. Leviticus 25, 1-4. God spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you, the Lord shall keep the, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. So who's keeping the Sabbath to the Lord? The land. For six years you shall show, sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its fruit. But in the seventh year, there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap what grows of itself in your harvest or gather the grapes of an undressed vine. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. So already in the Old Testament, we're given this hint of seven years tied to sabbatical, tied to rest. In Daniel's prophecy, the first of these sevens, Daniel 9.25, comprises seven sabbatical years, 49 years total. And that constitutes the jubilee of Leviticus 25.8, where we read seven Sabbaths of years amounted to a period of 49 years. So in Leviticus, then, we're given hints already of the sabbatical pattern. So we've got a frame of reference here that is helpful. Now, that in turn 
the 49 years, precedes the 50th year. And what happens in the 50th year? Well, liberty is to be proclaimed throughout the land to all the inhabitants. Debts are remitted, prisoners are set free. All of that takes place in that, that jubilee year. So, what's going to happen in the ultimate jubilee, jubilee year? If the land rests every seven years, at the end of that time, there's a jubilee in the 50th year. Debts are remitted. Prisoners are set free. That's pointing us ahead not to an improved criminal justice system. It's pointing us ahead to Christ. And Christ establishing the ultimate jubilee. So we're, we're getting some hints here that this passage doesn't occur just in isolation. Now the total then of the 77s in Daniel 9 constitutes 10 jubilees with the emphasis falling upon the ultimate jubilee yet to come after the 490 years has passed. Now, if we've already looked at the passage and we see the active and passive obedience of Christ, we see that Jesus is going to finish transgression, put an end to sin, atone for wickedness, bring an everlasting righteousness, seal up vision and prophecy, anoint the most holy, all of the, the work, by the way, of Christ's prophetic prophet, priest, and kingly offices. If he's going to do that, and now we're looking at ten times jubilee, this is the Messianic age. Daniel's starting to kind of lay out here using this sabbatical jubilee imagery that at a point in time, the ultimate jubilee is coming. So this points us in the direction, I think, of Leviticus 25 and 26 as underlying Gabriel's answer to Daniel. Uh, this, again, is something that doesn't occur in a, in a vacuum. It kind of does for us, since we're not familiar with these prophecies as uh, Israel would have been, certainly as Daniel would have been, but it's uh, important to realize that there's a covenantal pattern here. It's seen in the covenantal use of the divine name, Yahweh Adonai, as well as in the covenant renewal uh, language we're going to see, and in the sabbatical pattern, and in the jubilee. Now, for another thing, Daniel 9:24 and following clearly follows this covenant administration pattern set out in Leviticus 26. And I wish we had time to read this uh, if you get a chance afterwards, uh, look at Leviticus 26, 24 and following. You can read that through and see that this uh, covenant administration pattern is pretty well spelled out. All of that is to say, the 70-week structure is built upon the Sabbath jubilee pattern of Leviticus 25. And so, quoting Klein, Daniel 9 as a whole follows the covenant administration pattern of Leviticus 26. Daniel's prayer in verse 4 corresponds to the confession of Leviticus 26.40 and the prophecy corresponds to the covenant, restitution, and renewal of Leviticus 26. Basically, Gabriel is promising Daniel the covenant is going to be renewed according to the sabbatical pattern, according to the pattern of covenant administration, and in fulfillment of the Jubilee. So Daniel prays, and boy, does he get an answer. A remarkable answer. That's what I'm getting at when I'm saying we're just scratching the surface of this. This is one of the, the richest passages in all the Old Testament. And sadly, it's been turned into kind of a prophetic you know, springboard. With, it's not all about Antichrist and, and peace treaties with Israel, when in fact this is a glorious messianic prophecy that is just packed with really rich and important redemptive themes. Now, there's another 
redemptive historical connection that we have to consider in this passage as well. In Leviticus 26, verse 43, the Lord declares that a time is coming, quote, when the land will be deserted by them, the Israelites, and will enjoy its Sabbath while it lies desolate without them. Remember the covenant blessings and curses of the Mosaic economy. Under the covenant God made with Israel at Mount Sinai, if it's a national covenant, remember, if Israel is obedient to that covenant, they receive blessing. And what are the blessings? You dwell in the land. You're going to have lots of figs on your trees, lots of grapes on your vine. You're going to have lots of kids. It's going to rain a lot. The land's going to be fertile. Your cows are going to get fat. It's going to be land flowing with milk and honey. And I'll keep all the ites away from you. Disobey that covenant and what happens? Out of the land. So here in Leviticus, there's a prophecy that Israel is going to be kicked out of the land so that the land has a Sabbath lying desolate without the Israelites living on it. Now, in Chronicles chapter 36, 2 Chronicles 36, verse 21, we learn that these covenant curses are indeed meted out because the chronicler looks back on this period of time and he writes, The land enjoyed its Sabbath rests. All the time of desolation it rested until the 70 years were completed in fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. So again, in the book of Chronicles, the author, the chronicler, we call him, is arguing that the land has enjoyed this Sabbath rest as Israel's kicked out. Israel's removed from the land. The land rests. Israel's not going to rest. They're disobeying the covenant of God. They're not keeping the Sabbath. So the land keeps it. It's kind of a parallel to Palm Sunday. If you don't cry out and sing the Messianic songs, I'll make the rocks do it. If you guys won't rest when you're gone, the land sits desolate, it's fulfilling the Sabbath. It's resting. So that theme's going on as well. Now, in the next verse in Chronicles, we're told that this will come about in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, I mentioned in the passage it has a beginning. When a decree is issued to go forth and rebuild Jerusalem, well, here's the biblical reference to it. Uh, Cyrus, king of Persia. Um, we find this in Isaiah 44:28 as well. Isaiah describes the same event. He's talking about Cyrus, and he says of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt. Now, if you know anything about the debate over Daniel chapter 9, uh, Cyrus's decree is a huge issue in biblical studies. We can date the decree at about 539 to 536 B.C. And if the references in the biblical passages to Cyrus' decree are the beginning of the prophecy, it's 539 to 536 B.C. And that's going to mean the 490 years may not be literal or may refer to its fulfillment followed by the Jubilee, however you track this. You figure... 536 years to the coming of Christ, 490. There's about 40 years off there before the coming of Christ. So, if you follow the biblical references here, 
the prophecy isn't as literal as the dispensationalists insist that it is. They throw this back at us and say, see, there you're spiritualizing the prophecy again. So I think there's some ways around that. I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on it, but Cyrus' decree is, is really a, a big deal for dispensationalists. They argue, a lot of them follow um, J.D. Anderson's point, that the decree was issued, I forget the exact year, I have it here, um, in about 450 B.C., and they'll tie this to Artaxerxes' decree to go back to the land of Jerusalem. Um, I think, I'm, on, I'm, on, I'm more comfortable referring to Cyrus' decrees as mentioned in Scripture and kind of having an issue with the literalness of the years given the, the Jubilee theme being predominant. But you can make a case, as Anderson and Harold Heiner and others do, for a 440-ish, 450-ish time, and that would put the 409th fulfillment right in the middle of Christ's um, Messianic ministry. So that's one of the big debates about the passage. I don't want to bog down on that because I think it misses the, the bigger picture what is the passage getting at. So I call your attention to that um, because that is a, a large debate that kind of underlies the, the uh, discussion of the eschatology. Now, if you look at the Chronicler and Isaiah, and if we're assuming that this is Cyrus, in the same year Cyrus issues his decree to allow Jerusalem to rebuild, it's that same year then that Gabriel appears to Daniel, telling Daniel that the 70 years have concluded and that a new 70 years is going to begin all over again. So if this is covenant renewal, look, what Jeremiah had described, that's fulfilled, this pattern is going to start over again. When it starts over again, it's going to be messianic this time. The fulfillment is going to be greater than the previous prophecy. So there's kind of this sense of the prophecy uh, being exponentially greater as it's recapitulated than it is initially. Now, at the conclusion of the 70 weeks that begin with the decree of Cyrus, when that prophecy is fulfilled, the Anointed One will have come. The Anointed One is Israel's Messiah, and it is His mission to establish the new and everlasting covenant that was announced as the goal of the 70 weeks in the opening verse of the prophecy. In the course of his mission, he must undergo the violent death, suffering on behalf of many. That's a quote from Meredith Klein. The important point about the prophecy, whether it starts here or here, is when it's completed, this will have come to pass. That's what's really important about the passage. Those things will have been fulfilled. Jesus will have come. He will have established the covenant in His own blood and He will have suffered on behalf of the many. Now, you can find this very difficult idea also in Isaiah's prophecy of the suffering servant. Why do I say it's difficult? If you're a Jew and you know your Jewish history and a king like David's going to come, you know, sometimes take out your, your study Bible, look at the maps in the back, and look at the, the empire of Israel under David and Solomon when it extended almost to, well into Syria, almost over to the Euphrates River, down into Gaza, and Israel controlled all of that. 
So you're a Jew and you're told that a Messiah is going to come who's going to be the greatest king in your history. You know your history well enough to know that we're going to get all of that land back plus. So Jews are thinking of this in nationalistic terms, which is certainly understandable. And we've seen every time we go through the Gospels during Easter or Christmas how difficult it would have been to have been a Jew in Jerusalem and have Jesus speak of this kingdom and to be so oppressed by the Romans and to be, you're told in your scriptures that you're not to serve any Gentile nation. And there's a Roman fort you know, within 100 yards of the temple, garrisoned 24-7. So you're living like that. There are these promises of a Messianic kingdom. So you're thinking armies, conquest, victory. And we would have been thinking that too had we been there. But along the lines of the Messianic prophecy of conquest, kingship, and so on, there's this other theme. The Messiah is also going to suffer. And if you know anything about if you talk to Jews, one of the things they really have a hard time with is Isaiah 52 to 53, the suffering servant prophecy. And how do Jews interpret that? That's Israel. Israel suffered. So how do you have king and triumph and conquest along with dying and suffering? Well, you have it in Christ. But until Christ comes, it's really hard to see how this is going to fit together. So alongside of the kingly images, we have this prophecy of a suffering servant. And that's hinted at in Daniel. The idea in Isaiah's prophecy is that when the Messiah comes, he's going to come as a suffering servant. He's going to preach, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom to the captives and release from the prisoners. That's Isaiah 61 Verse 1, a passage we probably all know. But in verse 2 of Isaiah 61, a verse jumps out at us, tying all of this together. Isaiah says that the anointed one's mission is to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of God's vengeance. That's jubilee. That's a prediction of the jubilee. The year of the Lord's favor, you know your Old Testament? Oh, that's the Jubilee year. So Messiah is going to bring about this great and glorious Jubilee. And it's in his own person, in his own coming, that the Messiah is going to deliver the captives and proclaim that ultimate Jubilee to which that 490 years had been pointing and which now comes to fruition with the coming of Christ. Now, behind the anointed one then of Daniel 9, 24 to 27 is Isaiah's suffering servant, who must be cut off from the land of the living so that many might be justified. So Cyrus has issued his decree. Gabriel is now telling Daniel in answer to his prayers that this whole new set of sabbatical years is about to begin. Only this time, it's not just another 70 years of captivity. It's when this thing is done, when this thing runs its course, all the covenant blessings will be realized and Israel will enter into the ultimate jubilee. So Daniel's going to be able to tie king, triumph, conquest to suffering, very much like Isaiah does. Now, when we come to verse 27 of Daniel chapter 9, and we read of a covenant, what's the context? 
everything we've been talking about for the last 35 minutes. That's the context. So, as Klein says, there should be no doubt as to the identity of that covenant. When we come to verse 27 of Daniel 9. But our dispensational friends insist that the subject of verse 27, he will confirm a covenant with the many for one seven, that refers back to the preceding he in verse 26, the ruler who will come and destroy the city and the sanctuary. And when they do that, they are in error because they're confusing the identity of the covenant maker, Christ, who's cut off for his people with the Roman prince, and the Roman prince is the Antichrist. So, this is a rather significant point when you come to Daniel 9.27. What covenant is that? It's everything we've been talking about. It's not a reference back to the prince in verse 26. In order to make the dispensationalist grid work, dispensationalists have to insist that the Messiah is cut off after the 62 sevens, and now there all of a sudden is this indeterminate gap of time between the 69 sevens and the 70th seven, when the one who confirms the covenant with the many is understood to be Israel in the last days, and he arrives upon the scene to do his dastardly deed. Got to do a chart. That's all too complicated. One seven, 62 sevens, right? At the end of that, Messiah is cut off, say the dispensationalists. So there's a gap before the final seven years is fulfilled. Now, if the first seven and the next 62 run consecutively, is there any justification for there being a gap between the 69th week and the 70th week? Now, think about that for a minute. What dispensations are saying is the covenant is made by the prince, not by the Messiah. And that covenant is not made until thousands of years after Christ. This is a seven-year peace treaty with Antichrist that marks the beginning of the tribulation. Is there any justification in the passage? Is there anything in the context that would hint at this? No, everything points in the exact opposite direction. This is just out of left field, frankly. Now, it gets worse. Where is the gap here? Now, I think this is huge. And let me tell you why I think it's huge. If you're a dispensationalist, what are your operating assumptions? That you interpret the Bible literally. And when you're up against Protestant liberalism, you know, guys that don't take the Bible seriously at all, that sounds on its face like, yeah, every godly Christian should interpret the Bible literally. But are we to interpret the Bible literally? Well, it depends on the genre. If it's historical narrative, absolutely. If it's apocalyptic, well, not necessarily, because the author doesn't intend us to read it literally. I've referred to this a number of times in the previous lectures, but... What do you do when you come to the book of Revelation? You find locusts. You know, is John telling us of a future technology? You know, that the, the uh, grasshopper looks like a, a, a bell helicopter? Well, Hal Lindsey says that after championing literal interpretation. And dispensationalists can't make good on their own hermeneutic, and this is the primary place where they can't. 
We interpret the Bible literally. You amillenarians, you spiritualize the Bible. You don't take it literally. Okay, fair enough. For the sake of discussion, suppose that's true. Where's the gap? Where's this gap between the 69th and the 70th week? It's not there because the first seven and the next 62 are, inter- are fulfilled consecutively. The prophecy is not fulfilled until the 70th week is underway. Where's the gap? It's not there. You have to insert it. But you just said you're a dispensationalist because you interpret the Bible literally. So where's the gap come from? This is one place where the internal inconsistencies of dispensationalism brought me to reject the system of dispensationalism. We interpret the Bible literally, fair enough. What's the justification for inserting a gap of at least 2,000 years between the 69th and the 70th week of Daniel? And what is your interpretive context to say that verse 26 is, verse 27, the covenant is with Antichrist, not with the Messiah, uh, who is the subject of this entire chapter of Daniel? I think dispensationalism just really flounders on this, this whole point. The dispensationalist has to insert this gigantic gap. And it's the failure to acknowledge the obvious covenantal context of the Messianic covenant maker who confirms a covenant with the many for one seven that leads our dispensational friends to confuse Jesus with the Antichrist. And frankly, a more serious interpretive error is kind of hard to imagine. <laughs> um, that's a tough one. Christ or Antichrist, you know, that, that's not a passage you want to, you want to be flipping about. Now, the failure of our dispensational friends to see that it's the Messiah being spoken of in verse 27, not the Antichrist, comes because they've already decided in verse 24 that when Daniel speaks of what's going to be accomplished, it hasn't yet been accomplished. A couple of things here that we ought to kind of flesh out. Remember in verse 27, here's what has to be fulfilled. Seventy-sevens are decreed for you and your people, your holy city, to finish transgression, put an end to sin, atone for wickedness, bring in everlasting righteousness, seal up vision and prophecy, anoint them most holy. Those things have to be completed during the 490 years so that the jubilee is fulfilled and the blessings apply to God's people long after the prophecy is actually fulfilled. These are the blessings enjoyed by God's people in the jubilee that follows the fulfillment of this passage. Now, We've discussed it before, but you quickly recognize that Daniel's talking here in prophetic terms of the active and passive obedience of Christ. What one Reformed commentator, E.J. Young, calls the positive and negative aspects of the Messiah's work. Christ's death, his so-called passive obedience, finishes transgressions. This is described in the New Testament, for example, in Romans chapter 6 where Paul is speaking of how the death of Christ breaks sin's power over God's people. The Messiah takes away sin's condemnation, Romans chapter 5, 12 to 19. And Jesus atones for wickedness, Romans 3, 21 to 26. Jesus accomplishes all these things. So, before the prophecy is over, Jesus, in his passive obedience, when he offers himself up to death upon the cross for our sins, fulfills these things. Did Jesus finish transgression? He didn't stop people from sinning, but He took away the power of sin. 
The Bible is very clear about that. Did he put an end to people actually sinning? No, but he broke the power of sin over us. Did he atone for wickedness? Absolutely. He's accomplished all of these things. And in his active obedience, which I think is a clear reference to his threefold office of prophet, priest, and king, Jesus does bring in an everlasting righteousness. How does Jesus bring in an everlasting righteousness? He does what Adam failed to do. He does what Israel failed to do. He fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law. And thereby, when we trust in Him, we are regarded as though we had kept the commandments of God perfectly every moment of our life. He has brought in an everlasting righteousness. Well, what about the other language here? Well, Jesus... uh, seals up vision and prophecy, which I take as a reference to his prophetic office. Remember, it's Peter who declares that Jesus is that greater prophet that Moses said was going to come in Acts 3.22. Then finally, to anoint the most holy is a reference, I think, to Christ's baptism and being indwelt by the Holy Spirit as recounted in um, Matthew chapter 3. Now, as Young points out, and I'm quoting E.J. Young here, these things are all messianic. So the termination of the 77 coincides then not with the time of Antiochus Epiphanes way back in about 160 B.C., nor with the end of this present age as dispensational state, Christ's second coming, but, Young says, with his first advent. Jesus accomplishes all of these things in his messianic mission. And by accomplishing all of these things, we now live in the ultimate jubilee. We experience all the benefits that Israel was promised in the Jubilee because Christ brought that to pass. It's just a glorious, glorious prophecy. And so the failure on the part of dispensations to see this, which is sad, uh, comes about because they see this passage as referring only to national Israel. And that leads to a very serious error regarding the future course of redemptive history. Because our friend Alva J. McLean, godly Christian man, says, and I'm quoting, the fulfillment of the tremendous events in verse 24 cannot be found anywhere in known history. Let me read that again. The fulfillment of the tremendous events of verse 24 cannot be found anywhere in known history. He says, people are still sinning. That won't stop until Christ comes back. That sin still is being paid for. Sinners have yet to repent. That everlasting righteousness hasn't been fulfilled yet because Jesus took the offer of the kingdom back to heaven with Him. In other words, you don't have the categories of active and passive obedience. Then all you have is Jesus dying for present sin, perhaps past sin, but not paying for future sin and certainly not providing you with an imputed righteousness. Although Young would affirm that probably. So this is what drove me nuts when I was a dispensationalist. You say you believe in justification by grace alone through faith on account of Christ alone, yet in a passage in the Old Testament that predicts that very thing, you say that hasn't been fulfilled yet and there's no place in history where it has. That's a problem. Now, I'm going to assume this is a best-case scenario. I'm not saying he's denying the gospel. I think he's thoroughly confused about the gospel and about active and passive obedience. And it comes up here. And it leaves you by saying, with this, like, how could this not be fulfilled? When, in fact, this is the whole point of the Messianic 
ministry of Christ have accomplished this. So, by forcing this passage into this dispensational Procrustean bed, namely that Daniel's not speaking, that Daniel is speaking of Israel, not the church, he's not even talking about Christ, of course dispensations are going to stumble badly when they come to verse 27. So, they don't see the covenant as an overarching redemptive historical theme. And so they insert a gap between verse 26 and 27 because their presuppositions demand that they do. And they miss the obvious meaning of the passage. Says Klein, the whole context speaks against the supposition that an altogether different covenant from the divine covenant, which is a central theme throughout Daniel 9, is abruptly introduced here at the climax of the whole prophecy. Dispensationalists have to say the covenant described in Daniel 9 is a peace treaty Antichrist makes with Israel as opposed to Christ fulfilling all the covenant promises of the Old Testament. Context, context, context. They get this one really wrong. Embarrassingly so. The language throughout Daniel supports the identification of the one who makes a covenant with the many as none other than Jesus himself. Not only does verse 25 give us a list of messianic and redemptive accomplishments associated with the coming one, but in verse 26 we read that the anointed one will be cut off. Now Daniel uses a verb here, karat, which is used to describe the cutting ritual associated with the ratification of covenants. Remember when animals are killed? They're cut. Blood is shed. That's how covenants are renewed. We forget the religion of the Old Testament is rather bloody. It's kind of hard for us to imagine you know, going to the local uh, slaughterhouse for services, but imagine what the temple was like. And animals bleeding and blood running down channels and fires going and meat being consumed. I mean, this is, this is a category we forget that there was blood shed for the remission of sin, pointing ahead to the coming of Christ, after which there is no longer the shedding of blood. And so if this is a covenant term, karat, this connects the cutting off of verse 26 with the confirming of verse 27, confirming of that covenant. And the angel then is informing Daniel of this so that the disturbing word in verse 26 of the cutting off the anointed one doesn't mean the ultimate failure of his mission. And Gabriel's got to comfort Daniel. Messiah's going to be cut off. Now, how is he going to understand the conquering king being killed. It just doesn't make any sense. This whole suffering servant motif again. But it's in Daniel 9, and Gabriel answers that for Daniel. In verse 27, Gabriel informs Daniel that the one who's cut off, nevertheless, is going to make a covenant in the middle of the 70th week of the prophecy. So instead of this gap, I think it's very clear that in the final week, Messiah is cut off in the middle of the week, but not for himself. Daniel, you know, couldn't have understood what we read so plainly in the New Testament. Jesus died for us while we were yet sinners. That's what Daniel is basically saying in Old Testament language. It's very clear for us. Now, as we get to the end here, it's very significant that in verse 27... The angel informs Daniel that the anointed one is going to confirm a covenant with the many. Now, notice what dispensationalists say. The Messiah, no. The prince who is to come 
will make a peace treaty with Israel. It's a new treaty, right? De novo, from scratch. But is that what's going on here? No, there is no new covenant here. This is a confirmation of an existing covenant. The verb higber is used, which means to make strong or to cause to prevail. And so the use of that word then is another problem for dispensationalists because in verse 27, they say this is the Antichrist and he's making an entirely different covenant from that implied by the use of Karat in verse 26. And the use of Higbir here illustrates that the covenant is being made strong or that it will prevail, tells us that in verse 27, that covenant isn't being made de novo, but it's a covenant being confirmed or enforced. In other words, the covenant being confirmed in the middle of the 70th week by the Anointed One is a covenant that already exists. He's just confirming that covenant. He's just ratifying that covenant. And so that clearly is a reference to the covenant of grace that God had made previously with Abraham and now being confirmed by the Messiah on behalf of the many. Remember Isaiah 53, verse 12? The many will be redeemed by the suffering servant. So... This entails all of the blessings promised in verse 24. Blessings secured by the shed blood and the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And it also means then that there is no gap between the 69th week and the 70th week, as dispensationalists argue. Rather, during the Messianic age, the Messiah is cut off in the middle of the 70th week. How long was Jesus' public ministry? three and a half years or thereabouts. I mean, you, you can just start to see, whoa, this is a Messianic prophecy, and it's pretty clear that Jesus fulfilled it. Now, a couple of things come up that we want to just kind of wrap up here as we conclude. The first of these is, all right, what happens to the last three and a half years of the 70th week? They're just kind of left hanging out there. Hmm, remember our hermeneutic? The New Testament interprets the Old Testament... Some of you know your Bibles pretty well. Where do we read this language of 42 months, a time, a times, and a half a time, and three and a half years? Where does that appear in the New Testament? Ah, the book of Revelation. So what do we do then when the book of Revelation, which, remember, is interpreting Daniel? There are three and a half years left hanging here in the Old Testament and in this prophecy, right? Everybody see that that's the Messiah's cut off in the middle of the 70th seven. So there's three and a half remaining. What do you do when the New Testament mentions that three times? That tells us what this is about. So let me explain. If Christ is cut off in the middle of the 70th week, then what happens to the last part, the three and a half years of the final seven-year sabbatical period before the Jubilee? Well, here again, we look to see how New Testament writers interpret the Old Testament. And in this case... We find the answer in John's Apocalypse, Revelation 12, verse 14, which we probably ought to read. Revelation 12, 14. But the woman was given two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, a times, and half a time. One passage. There, there are several other. 11.19. It's, I mean, it's three or four references. But that's one place where it appears. Klein 
makes this following point, and I'm going to read from his uh, essay, Covenant, The Covenant of the 70th Week. It says Klein, quote, The last week is the age of the church in the wilderness of the nations for a time, a times, and a half a time, according to Revelation 12:14. Since the 70 weeks are 10 jubilee eras that issue in the last jubilee, the 70th week closes with the angelic trumpeting of earth's redemption and the glorious liberty of the children of God. The acceptable year of the Lord that came with Christ then will have fully come. Then the new Jerusalem, whose temple is the Lord and the Lamb, will descend from heaven, and the Ark of the Covenant will be seen, and the covenant the Lamb has made to prevail, and the Lord the covenant the, the Lamb has made to prevail, and the Lord has remembered. So, Christ confirms the covenant God has made, namely that He is our God, that we are His people. And although he's wrought the blessings of the Jubilee, including forgiveness of sin and everlasting righteousness, which has been accomplished by Christ, the final three and a half years then, according to the book of Revelation, is typological of the church on the earth during the entire period of its existence and is clearly a reference to this time of tribulation depicted in the book of Daniel. So all that is to say, when John looks back at this prophecy, he takes this period... And he says, this is the interadvenal period. In which the church lives in light of Christ's jubilee, and yet also waiting the final consummation. When everything is fulfilled and when all sin ceases. So I think there are four or five references to the time, times half a times three and a half years, 1,060 days in the book of Revelation. It's in chapter 11. And it's also in chapter 12, and I think again in like 16. So, in any case, the New Testament tells us what this three and a half year period is, and it is the interadvenal period. One more question, and that has to do with the final two clauses of verse 27. So, I'll read the last two clauses of verse 27. Virtually every translation you have will be different because these are very difficult verses to translate. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Um, very difficult passage in Hebrew. Um, how the desolation can be uh, decreed and poured out, well, where are we going to go for help there? Let's go back to the original fulfillment of the prophecy. Seal up vision, anoint the most holy, that's going to provide, I think, some help here. How, let's put it this way. What happens to the temple in AD 70? It's destroyed. It's gone. So that's going to be part of the prophecy. The end that's been decreed is poured out. An abomination that causes desolation. Titus going into the temple. Um, as you know, the temple is desecrated. The, the story goes that the soldiers are wanting the, the gold uh, and starting to strip the gold, the temple catches on fire, and the architecture of the temple is such as like a flue, and it heats up very quickly as everything in the temple starts to burn, all the furnishings burn, the heat rises, the gold uh, melts, all the imp- temple implements melt, run down in the water, the drainage system. So the soldiers, to get the gold out, do what? They tear the temple apart to dig the gold out. So the temple is completely destroyed, not one stone left standing upon another. It's rather remarkable. So that part, the destruction of the temple is pretty clear. But think about this. What happens on Friday afternoon when Jesus is crucified? What happens in the temple when Jesus dies? 
the veil in the temple is torn immediately from top to bottom. So I think there are several things we can say here in response to this. One is that the author of Hebrews very clearly thought that Christ's death put an end to sacrifice in a religious sense. In Hebrews 9, verses 25 to 26, we read that Christ appeared at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. And so, after Christ died, sacrifices did continue in the temple. But once Christ's death ratifies God's covenant on that Calvary, any sacrifice that continues in the temple is now what? It is an absolute abomination. Once Jesus dies on the cross and fulfills this and brings about the Messianic Jubilee, then what about those who continue to sacrifice animals in the temple that pointed ahead of the Jubilee? It becomes absolute blasphemy, becomes an abomination. And so when the temple is destroyed, then an end is put to that abomination. When Jesus dies and is cut off for his people, the temple veil is torn from top to bottom, and from that moment forward, the temple becomes desolate, and any acceptable sacrifice ceased. And so the events that transpire in AD 70 guarantee then that this final end to the temple, that end which has been decreed, has come to pass. I think that interpretation, I wouldn't die for it, but I think that interpretation makes as much sense as any other and, and certainly appeals to um, a, a good chunk of biblical data to support it. And so at the end of the day, then, we can say, I think pretty clearly that Daniel 9, 24 to 27, is a glorious messianic prophecy. It does not in any sense uh, allow a dispensational reading the fact that the angel Gabriel envisions the ultimate jubilee after 490 years points forward to the already not yet distinction. Christ has brought about all of these blessings. Now, they're currently present, they're real, and yet they're not fully consummated. And the consummation will finally come and that glorious jubilee in which we now live will be finally and ultimately consummated. So I take Daniel 9, 24 to 27 to be a glorious Messianic prophecy. I think if you read it this way, it is a serious problem for dispensationalism. I think dispensationalists cannot make good on their own claim to read the Bible literally. Um, if you're a dispensationalist, you have to ask yourself, what is your hermeneutical justification for inserting gaps in passages when the gaps are not there? And your own hermeneutic says you can't do that. Second, what is your justification for taking a messianic prophecy with all this covenant language and ignoring that and arguing that the covenant in verse 27 is an altogether new covenant with the Antichrist? What is your contextual justification for doing that? If you take those two things away and you're a dispensationalist, you no longer have a future seven-year tribulation period. It's gone. You no longer have end times centering on a peace treaty between the Antichrist and Israel. That's gone. You lose the whole thing. So if you're a dispensationalist, you've got to really wrestle with this passage. And as a former dispensationalist, I'm here to tell you, uh, it was going through Daniel chapter 9 that just finally uh, did me in. I could, I could no longer be a dispensationalist after hearing Klein's lecture on this. Or just, he was even answering a, a student's question. So I think this is a great messianic prophecy. We have time for some questions. If you have any questions, be sure to step up to the mic so we can get them on tape. And don't all run to the mic at once.
no questions. Go to the mic. So we can hear you. So everyone can hear you. I have a question about the Israel being saved. Yes. Um, Obviously, that's ethnic Israel, but we, I mean, if you keep up with what's going on now, um, you know, are you talking about like Sephardic, Ashkenazi? I mean, just because, I mean, how that's playing out, obviously, with dispensationalism now. Right. um, I'm curious, like, for all we know, ethnic Israel might be the Muslims in Israel and Palestinians, you know, because I have heard that the, if you take the two um, genetic, uh, you, you know what I'm talking about. Okay, so I'm curious, because that has huge implications. Then. It sure does. <laughs> because of the way we treat Muslims, the way we're treating Palestinians. It's a great, it's a great question. Yeah. A, a couple things. I, when I get to Romans 9 to 11, I'm going to argue that Paul makes a distinction at the beginning of that chapter between all Israel and not all Israel. All Israel are Jews according to Paul's category, which I think would be something like either a proselyte or someone who has a Jewish mother and is biologically Jewish as first century people understood that relationship. Um, and some have corrected me and said, well, it's by the father. Well, I've heard both, so I'm not... I, I think the, the point's moved. It's, it's basically those considered Jews in the first century are all Israel. And Paul says before the time of the end, all Israel is going to be saved. So how that squares with modern DNA and the complicated DNA of people that live in what's now Palestine, if if you're up on DNA studies, they're Phoenicians, ancient Phoenicians, they're Syrians, they're ancient... Nubians and their ancient Arabs, all of it, plus, plus all the gazillions of ethnic groups that have been through there because of the commerce and the conquest. So dispensationalists are making a big point about can we find the Levites by their DNA? What about the Ashkenazi? I mean, there's just a huge. I think we have to answer that theologically, and I, I think we kind of go off the rails when we try and apply modern science to, to Paul's category. Whatever definition Paul has of Israel, that's the one we have to go by. And he says all Israel will be saved. I take that to mean that large numbers of ethnic Jews, people who identify themselves as Jews, are going to come to faith in Christ right before the end. Now, one of the things that's a very big problem for those of us who are not dispensationalists I've, I've mentioned this a number of times, but it's, it's the pink elephant in the room. Whenever we talk about eschatology, dispensations have their problems. This is our problem. Israel's back in the land. Um, Herman Bovink and Louis Burkhoff both said in the 1940s, 30s and 40s, Burkhoff, uh, Bovink died in 21. They both said in their eschatology, yeah, there's this nutty group called premillenarians, and they think that the Jews are going to be back in the land. How crazy is that? So a knowledgeable dispensationalist knows that Burkhoff said this, knows that Herman Bovink said this, and they throw it at you like, all right, Israel's back in the land. Now what are you going to do with that? And I'm going to argue that, for one thing, in the same passage where Paul talks about the future of Israel, he's already said, 
that anyone who trusts Christ is a child of Abraham. And that Abraham, in Romans 4.13, is the heir of the whole world. So it's Paul who takes the, the, the geographical boundary and tears it up and says, no, anybody who trusts Christ is a child of Abraham and therefore not all Israel, but all Israel is going to be saved. And I think that to me, that Paul, uh, uh, the gospel progress is going to kind of switch from Gentiles to Jews and huge numbers of Jews are going to come to faith. And it would seem to me that the providential preservation of Jews by a Jewish state would be one of the ways that could be accomplished. But that's my opinion. So, I don't think we can answer this to DNA. And I think dispensations kind of... They're really preoccupied with, with the fine points of prophetic issues and this, the big picture. Uh, one case where they do this is on the technology of Antichrist, the mark of the beast. They're so worried about some future technology uh, being able to... giving the Antichrist the, the power to control everybody that they overlook the theological meaning of 666. Here, we're talking about sabbatical patterns. That is, seven. What's the number of perfection in Scripture? Seven. Repeated three times. Seven, seven, seven would point us to the Trinity. Six, six, six. Six is the number of days people are to work. It's the number of man. Repeated three times is the beast, the false prophet, and the dragon who ascribe to deity but never attain it. So, you miss the whole point when you're trying to figure out how technology can get this mark on the back of our hands. The same way dispensationalists miss the point by worrying about the DNA. We have to answer this theologically. It's a great question. Yeah. yeah it's fascinating. I haven't heard of this before, especially the interpretation of the abomination that causes desolation. Yeah. Um, what about when it's used in Mark, the Olivet Discourse, Mark 13, when you see the same same phrase, see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it, where it uh, does not belong? Yep. Could you interpret that the same way? Yeah. I, I think Daniel 9 and, and the Olivet Discourse, the references to the abomination that makes desolate are the references to the same thing. The question that I have, I'm going to argue when we get to all that discourse, the, the kind of the, the area where I'm not real sure, is does that have yet a double fulfillment? And in other words, is the Roman conquest of sacred space, that is the final, in a sense, destruction of Jerusalem and before Israel's cast in the nations, mm-hmm. is that to us typological of the man of sin in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. So to answer your question, Philip, I would say yes, that is tied to Daniel chapter 9. That is the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 9. That's what Daniel's getting at. At some point, the temple is going to be Ichabod, destroyed, gone. And that's what the last verse of Daniel is talking about. And my question that I have and I'm still kind of wrestling with is that destruction of the temple in eighty seventy, kind of a, a typological picture of the end times persecution of the church universal by the man of sin. And that may be what Paul's thinking of in Second Thessalonians when he speaks of somebody seated on the throne claiming to be divine. And I take the temple there not to be Jerusalem temple, but church. So we'll get to that. Because everywhere Paul speaks of, he uses the word temple, it's always of the church. 
And that's why the reformers to a person identified the man of sin in the temple as the papacy. This is a heretic in the church who sets himself up as God, Pope's the vicar of Christ on earth, you know, all the false signs and wonders. So there's a, there's a reason why the reformers to, and your dear Westminster Confession, Papam est verum antichristum. The Pope is that antichrist, that man of sin. I mean, I, I think the reformers were justified in seeing the identification of the papacy and antichrist. But in the providence of God, the restraining power kept that from coming to full flower then. And we see this come again and again in the course of history. So I'm going to argue that, try and clarify some of that in all that discourse. So uh, Next week, we, I don't know if we'll get that far next time or not, but two weeks from tonight we will. We'll tackle that directly. Yeah, follow up. You said that you thought that um, the Jews would come to Christ partly through the preservation of the state of Israel. That's my opinion, yes. Your opinion, okay. Um, I, I don't have that. any biblical justification for that. I, oh, I do okay. have to explain okay. why okay. Israel's back in the land. Okay. And, and on amillennial eschatology, the land promise of the Abraham covenant is fulfilled. And we know that because in Romans chapter 4, Paul says Abraham is not the heir of the land, he's the heir of the whole world. It's Paul who universalizes it. I think it's an, um, by oath consigned or a structure of biblical authority that Dr. Klein um, is very critical of Zionism yeah. and dispensationalists. Do you yeah. know which passage I'm talking about? Yeah. Um, so, and he says, you know, I mean, he's critical of dispensationalists when he says that we, or not, I'm not dispensationalist, I shouldn't say we, but that, okay, can you comment on that passage? Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that Daniel chapter 9 is frequently used for, along with Genesis 12 and others, are Christian Zionists who say they will invoke the covenant promises that will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you as applying to, any, to, to basically national politics, geopolitics, as to how nations relate to Israel. So dispensationalists in our Congress and people like John Hagee and others just absolutely have a conniption fit when parts of the West Bank are given back to Palestine. They see this as just a betrayal of that land promise tied to the Abrahamic covenant. Dr. Klein's point and Amillenarian's point is, look, if the land promises is fulfilled, then whatever goes on in Israel in relationship to the Palestinian question is a purely political question and not a religious question. And if you look at the closing chapters of the book of Joshua, for example, Joshua says in that passage that everything God promised to Israel, they've received. So dispensations just blow over that as though the land promise isn't yet to be fulfilled. When in fact, Joshua says so, Paul says so, and in Romans 9-11, Paul never mentions the land again. So whatever we do with Israel in the modern period... The land promise is not part of national Israel's purpose anymore. So therefore, as Christians, we can't say there is any Christian nation on the earth today. This is a large section of the book I'm writing on the two kingdoms. I, I have to deal with the question, is America a Christian nation? Well, you can say descriptively America is a religious nation. But you can't say prescriptively America is a Christian nation because no nation on earth, including Israel, has a covenant with God anymore. When this prophecy of Daniel 9 is fulfilled, 
what happens after the temple is destroyed is Israel's in the diaspora into the nations, cast out of the land again. So as a Christian, I think we ought to have a special burden for the Jews. I think with Paul, we ought to say, would that they be saved, would that they come to faith. That said, there are hundreds of Christians in Palestine who are Arab by ethnicity, but who are Christians by profession of faith. And any time Christians in the United States ally with Israel, they're on the short end of the stick uh, politically in Palestine. I'll never forget going to the International Congress of the Peace of Jerusalem many, many years ago. My wife and I went. And you would have these household and evangelical leaders pray and, and you know, the mayor of Israel's uh, Jerusalem's there and all the, the, the Jewish you know, friends of dispensations were there. Those men refused to pray in Jesus' name in those assemblies. They'd offer prayer, include everybody, and say, for those of us who pray in Jesus' name, I'm sorry, I can't pray publicly with people who are not trusting in Christ. If I do, I have to pray in the name of Christ because that prayer apart from Christ is immediate. So that sort of sends shivers down my spine. Are we really letting these dear Jewish people think they're in covenant relationship with God by our act? We're basically deceiving them by not telling them they need a Savior. Then this, this very petite uh, Palestinian woman came in and, and spoke. And she said, I'm a Christian. I'm an evangelical Christian. But because I'm Palestinian, I have no... My, my family was kicked off our land we've had for 1,200 years, just on and on and on about all the horrible things that had happened because of the Balfour Declaration. So we as Reformed Christians have to be very, very careful not to send mixed signals to Jews. We need to say to them, the United Nations has given you a charter, you're a democracy and a political ally, but you don't have a religious right to that land, and because it's a political issue, you have to protect the human rights of non-Jewish citizens living there as well. And that's a hard thing to say in this culture. It's a really hard thing to say in this culture. I have a link on my blog to a statement, and it's a reform declaration about Israel that was put out a number of years ago. You might want to check it out. It's very helpful in that regard. It's on the blog. It'll be a uh, Israel in the Land, I think it's called. I've got my online resources. It's linked on that. I forget the author. I'm going to get it wrong. I think it's uh, um, O. Palmer Robertson and somebody else, but I'm not. It's been a while since I've looked at it. I know Mike is the signatory of it. Important one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's Yahweh's land. Good point. No, it's, 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 it was done by uh, Reform Seminary in Orlando. Or, or no, it was done by Knox Seminary. Yeah, that's one. Yeah, it's very good. And very helpful. This is, a, this is a tough one because, you know, as a Christian, I, I have strong sentimental ties and I, and I think historical ties to Jews. The, I mean, when we go through all that discourse, the greatest calamity in all of redemptive history is the sack of, Rome, sack of Jerusalem by the Roman army. Jesus weeps over the city just thinking about it because this was the holy of holies on earth but you would not, and he weeps. And then when the city is destroyed, 
No greater cataclysm has ever come or will ever come on my people but this right here. So there's a sense in which we as Christians have to lament what, what happened, how tragic that was. And yet, that event leads to our being saved in the providence of God. And at some point in the future, I think Romans 9 to 11 seems to say that pendulum's going to swing back. And we have this language from Paul. What if God takes the natural branches and he sticks them back in? Then what? You Gentiles don't boast because you're in there by mercy. What if I want to put the real branches back in? And that seems to me to say he's going to put the natural branches back in. But in the meantime, we've got to be careful not to... This is not, a, this is not an Islam-Judaism question. This is a... I'm speaking to the Christians who live in Palestine. We as evangelicals and Reformed Christians have to, have to be very careful about how we speak about Israel when they're many times victims of, of some pretty nasty political consequences. So just... It's a good question. I, I don't know all the answers to it, but I think we, the less we say, the better. The less we say about, about politics there that we don't know much about as Western in the United States, the better. And we certainly can say, as all Christians, Israel has no theological covenant with God. Well, the question was, what about dispensationalists and their poli- the implications of dispensation politically? Absolutely. I mean, there's speeches in Congress that you... you uh, I give the link to one I'm going to cite in my book that it just gives me the willies because this person is a, a sincere Christian. And everything else I know about this person speaks very highly of them as, a, as an evangelical Christian and an honorable person, making the statement that if the United States doesn't do this, this, and this for Israel, God's going to judge us. And there's no theological justification whatsoever for making that statement. So it's no wonder that the, the social scientists look at the influence of dispensationalism as a real serious uh, issue in geopolitical uh, discussions because dispensationalists are pushing this religious covenant with Israel. So it's a, it's a real problem. And we're, by the way, we're on the minority. In that. I mean, John Hagee will say, I'm anti-Semitic because of what I just said. And the dispensations really feel strongly about this. They feel this is almost at the level of heresy. And, you know, my interpretation of Daniel 9 is, has very strong geopolitical ramifications. So, let's close in prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful and glorious Messianic prophecy. We're thankful, Lord, for the reminder that our blessed Savior has brought in an everlasting righteousness and has made a full and perfect atonement for sin. We're thankful, Lord, to see in Your Word this prophecy, this ancient prophecy, come to pass so gloriously and really and truly in the personal work of our blessed Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray this in His name and for His sake. Amen.